Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Hey, can you help me thank guest worship leader today, Tiffany Casey, leading us in worship. Thank you, Tiffany. (laughs) Tiffany is on staff at a church in Atlanta, but uh, this is home. This is where she's from and spent a long time on the worship team at our sister campus, our John Young campus uh, of First Orlando. So, Tiffany, thanks for being here. And team, thanks for leading us. Uh, This morning, we're going to dive into the Word. Before we do that, um, I just want to acknowledge perhaps what is a collective sense of tension and anxiety about the state of the world right now. And if you're anything like me, you're kind of waking up to this and falling asleep to it and just feeling some of that pressure. And that doesn't even speak to things you're dealing with in your own life. And before we get ahead of ourselves, I would like to just pause, acknowledge that, and invite us to all take one deep breath. Can you do that with me? Okay. Story is told of of C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century theologian and writer, that one time in a game of chess that he was playing with a friend in a public space, a woman walking by recognized him for the great mind and the great man that he was and was alarmed that he was doing something as trivial as playing chess. And she said to him, Mr. Lewis, if your life were to end tonight, what would you do? To which he responded, I would finish my game of chess. The point being that we should be living our lives the way we would live them if they were in fact coming to an end, if in fact the world is going crazy. And I want to encourage you to do just that, that in the midst of the craziness around us, continue to come to church, continue to go to lunch or coffee with a friend, continue to watch the sunset with your spouse, continue changing those diapers Continue sharing Jesus with a neighbor as you have opportunity, and when you get the chance, play a game of chess. Can we do that? Would you pray with me? Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that even as the worship of of your name and exaltation of Jesus has already begun to lift our spirits, God, that the the preaching of your word and the truth that you reveal to us and the, the insight, God, that it would bring even further breakthrough an even further sense of, of your presence and your victory in us, your power at work in our lives. God, I pray that every person that leaves this room today would leave with a greater sense of you and a greater sense of your activity in their lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about we are statements, statements of identity, like we are followers of Jesus, week one. Uh, We are new creations, week two. And today I want to talk to you about this idea that we are victorious. We are victorious. If you're anything like me, you really enjoy living in a place where you're on firm footing. Like where things are stable. Where your job is secure and your spouse is engaged and your children are behaving and money is not tight. But for a lot of us, we find ourselves living in a place that's incredibly unsteady. And it feels like every day or every moment of every day, we're just trying to stay upright. Here, things are good. Here, things are scary. Things are hard. 
And we start to wonder, is it possible to live a victorious life in the midst of the hard things? And this is what I want to tell you, and this will be the title of our sermon today, Winning When Life Feels Wobbly. Winning When Life Feels Wobbly. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly or have it to the fullest. But what he says before that is that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And what a lot of us do is we go, man, when, when the stealing, when the killing, when the destroying ends, then I get to enter into this thing called abundant life. But that's not how it works. The way I might say John chapter 10 verse 10 is this, that Jesus says the thief keeps coming to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might keep having abundant life. In in other words, while things are still wobbly, I can rest in the confidence that God is for me, that he's with me, and that I have the victory in him. Did you know that many of the people we consider the greatest minds or the greatest men and women in history have dealt with incredible inward struggles and battles. A few years back, I got the chance to read Ralph Abernathy's um, memoir about the civil rights movement. Ralph Abernathy was the closest friend and confidant of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the truth is Dr. King battled a lot of discouragement, sometimes overwhelmingly so, even at the times where he was speaking in front of masses and changing the world. Abraham Lincoln had anxiety attacks. Isaac Newton, the great scientist, battled depression. And even the Apostle Paul admitted on several occasions that what was going on inside of him was not great. Romans chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 12, just to name a couple of places. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Most of the scriptures we'll have on the screen if you want to follow along in your own Bible or Bible app, I encourage you to do that as well. But I want to give you some context for the words that Paul is going to share with the Corinthians because when you understand what's going on in Paul's world and how wobbly it is, what he says is going to be more meaningful and hopefully connect on a deeper level. Paul has just, before writing this letter to the Corinthians, he has just severed ties with his first friend and the man who championed him after his conversion, a man named Barnabas. The book of Acts tells us that they got in such a sharp dispute that they actually parted company and never again during their earthly lives would they be in ministry together. He's just walked through that. Paul's grabbed a guy named Silas, gone on what's called the second missionary journey, and right out of the gate, he tries to go into a place in Asia, the door closes. So he tries another place, the door closes. He tries another place, the door opens, but Paul tells us that yet, though there was a door open, he didn't stay because his spirit was not at peace. Paul was in the middle of chaos, and if that wasn't enough, Paul is simultaneously dealing with intense persecution in his life, and ongoing conflict with the Corinthian church, the very people he's writing this letter to. Have you ever been there where it just feels like everywhere you turn there's conflict? Everywhere you turn there's, there's drama? Like this is what Paul is experiencing. And in spite of all of that, listen to the words he writes to the people of Corinth. 2 Corinthians 2 beginning at 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many others, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, we are commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is such a stark contrast to what Paul has been writing and dealing with that there are some scholars who believe this was uh, cut and paste from another letter. They go, there's no way Paul could have gone from verse 13 to verse 14, but he did. And what Paul is saying, I believe, the way I might translate those words is, friends, the thief is up to his normal tricks, but I'm experiencing abundant life in the middle of it. He always leads us in triumphal procession. Paul is stating what he knows to be true, not what he feels to be true. This is a game changer because some of you walk around stewing on the things you feel to be true. This will never work. It'll never happen. God's not for me. I'm defeated. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, I feel all that. Believe me, I do. But this is what I know to be true. And he says, not sometimes it's victory. Sometimes it's overcoming. He says, he always leads us in triumphal procession. And a person can only say that if they experience the whole breadth of circumstances and human emotion. Paul says, I've been there. And I can tell you in every place, I was victorious, God was faithful. Paul uses two metaphors. We're gonna pass through these quickly. I actually believe it's one kind of mixed metaphor. I'll explain that in a moment. And then we're gonna get to the heart of the message in just a moment. But Paul says that God leads us in triumphal procession And what he's referring to here is the Romans, you might know this from history class, the Roman Empire was massive and they were going into all the world taking captives and coming back to Rome. And when the Roman army would return from some great conquest, they would have a victory parade. They they would literally march into the streets of Rome and at the front were the conquering heroes and in the back were the captives from the lands they had conquered. And this is the imagery that Paul is painting when he says that Christ leads us in triumphal procession. Now, the American modern version of this is called a Super Bowl parade, okay? <laughs> Where we celebrate the victors. This is a picture of the Bucks uh, Super Bowl parade. There's the goat himself, Tom Brady. This is probably right after he threw the Lombardi trophy. I tried to find a picture of the Dolphins' last Super Bowl parade, but the internet didn't exist back in those days, and it was just hard to find pictures of that experience. Listen, Paul is saying, believer, we're in triumphal procession. We're part of the victory parade, but we are not at the back of the parade. We're not where the captives are, where the defeated are. We're right at the front of the parade where Jesus, the conquering hero, is. That's where we are. And notice he says, in Christ. Some of you remember this from last week. This this expression that Paul uses over 70 times in his letters. We are in Christ marching in victory. I want to ask you this question. How do you view yourself? When you hold up the, the spiritual or emotional mirror of your heart and go, man, who am I? Is what comes back at you defeat, conquered, depressed, discouraged, overcome? Or can you say like Paul, no, I am in triumphal procession in Christ. And then Paul uses this expression. He says, the aroma of Christ. I want to ask this. How many of you have lived in Orlando or Central Florida long enough to remember how I-4 smelled between First Baptist Orlando and downtown? Does anybody remember this? It smelled like bread. You're exactly right. And 
most of the room is going, why? What in the world are you talking about? The reason is there was a Merida bread factory and when you drove I-4 East, if you rolled down the windows and sometimes, even if you didn't, the smell of bread was just overcoming. It was wonderful. I don't even like to eat bread, but the smell is awesome. And now it's gone. But, but Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ. And, and to me, what I believe Paul is doing, I have no support from this in any commentaries that I've read, so I'm going out on my own here. I believe Paul's building on the idea of the victory parade because what would happen when the army would return from conquest in these distant lands and come into Rome, those dirty, smelly guys who had been flashing swords and killing people for several months had a stench to them. And in the places where they were conquering, that was the stench of death. When the Roman army arrived, it was the fragrance of death. But when that army returned to Rome as conquerors to the people of Rome, that same stench was the smell of victory. And Paul, I believe, is saying the fragrance of your life in Christ to those who are being saved, man, it smells like bread. (laughs) But to those who are perishing, it does not smell the same way. And some of you have experienced this. You've been in classrooms. You've been in workplaces. You've been at family reunions or maybe even in your own immediate family where somebody just could not stand the fact that you were a follower of Jesus. And every time you responded to cruelty with kindness, every time you smiled when they were discouraged, they they just, they hated that. And Paul says, it's okay. It doesn't smell the same to everyone. The fact is this, your life in Christ will repel some people and God will use it to redeem others. And you don't got to worry about the outcome. Like let God handle the outcome of that. Now I should probably add, if your personality is repelling people, change. (laughs) That's not the repellent that we want. We want to be whimsical and endearing and loving and kind and gracious. And yet, to those who are perishing, it is the stench of death. So I ask myself this, how how is Paul able to cling so tightly to the reality of victory when he's facing defeat on every front? In other words, how is Paul able to win when life feels wobbly? What was the secret for Paul? And I want to give you five secrets that I believe Paul had discovered and that we will have the opportunity to look at in the next several minutes. Number one, the first secret to winning when life feels wobbly is the encountered life. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that at one point in his history, he was named Saul. And as Saul, he was not only a Jewish person, which was kind of a privileged people, or so they thought at that time, but not only was he a Jewish person, he was of a tribe called Benjamin. Benjamin literally means the favorite son. I have a brother named Benjamin, and I'm bitter about it. Paul says, look, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. We're part of the favored people among the favored people. And not only that, but I'm a Pharisee. And not only that, among all the religious leaders who are Pharisees, I'm accelerating faster. I'm like climbing the corporate ladder. I am a wonderkin, man. I am, I am blowing it up here. That was Paul's credentials. And yet, on a road to Damascus, a voice from heaven comes and Paul asks the most alarming question for somebody with his credentials. He says, who are you, Lord? You're like, what? <laughs> Paul, you know, I mean, if a voice is coming from heaven, you know there's one God. You've read and probably memorized the entire old covenant. Like, of course you know who it is. Paul didn't know who it is, and here's why. 
Because no amount of moral certainty, no amount of religious training, no amount of church attendance can, can give you an understanding of who God is and give you the victory it is only in Christ. It's only when you have an encounter with Jesus. By the way, Paul was not looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for Paul. And when that encounter happened on the road to Damascus, everything, this is not an understatement, everything for Paul changed. In fact, the conversion was so profound that in our vernacular, we use an expression called the Damascus Road conversion. We go, man, that guy, he was 25 years in prison for, for peddling drugs and, and killing people. And man, but man, he found Jesus and like, he's a preacher now. He's a pastor. He's shepherding people. You go, I mean, that's a Damascus Road conversion that started with the Apostle Paul. His life was transformed by an encounter with Jesus. And Paul never got over it. He just never got over it. He, he, he two times in the book of Acts would be standing on trial before these powerful Roman people and he would use the opportunity to tell of what happened on the road to Damascus when he encountered Jesus. And then in his letters to Timothy and to Titus and to several of the churches, he would remind them, hey guys, remember, I used to be the worst of the worst sinners, but when Christ encountered me, when Jesus saved me, everything changed. May we never get far from the place that Jesus first encountered us. Start thinking it's something we did. Now we, we walked with Jesus for months or years and yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good. Like, no, no, no. You were dead and Jesus made you alive. It begins by encountering him. The second secret that Paul learned was the secret of the emptied life. I love how he says it in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was learning the secret of being emptied. Now, as Americans, as Western people, we, we love to win. I think we got some pictures. This is a, a political rally, politics aside. Why do we go to political rallies? Man, we want our candidate to win. Or, or maybe we show up at the swamp on a Saturday in September and we cheer for the Gators to win or lose, depending on your, but you see what I'm saying here, right? It's why we love songs like, all I do is win, 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 no matter what. We love to win. We love to win. And the great paradox of the Christian faith is that the way that we win is by losing. Like, what? What? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In, in other words, whoever is emptied of the life they had before Christ will be filled with the life of Christ. You will find your life, you will win in life by being willing to lose it. That's why Paul says, I'm crucified. And I, don't, I don't even live anymore. That, that life is dead, it's gone. I have a new life now in Jesus so how in the world do we get there? How, do we, how in the world do we embrace the emptied life? Because the truth is, I don't want it and neither do you, really, right? Like, I want my bank account to be full. I want people to think I'm strong, smart, and handsome. You think, you know, maybe if you're a woman, strong, smart, and beautiful, or whatever it is. Like, we want to win. Two ways of becoming empty, just practical things. Number one, and I learned this through Richard Foster's book on prayer, The Prayer of Relinquishment. Prayer of relinquishment. You take a passage like Philippians chapter 2. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the nature of a servant, being found in human appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, the emptied life of Jesus. And you sit with that passage and you say, Lord, help my attitude to be like Jesus. Or maybe you take Jesus' garden prayer and just with a single breath you pray this prayer, Father, not my will but yours be done. And when you're in the middle of the hard in your relationship or the hard in your workplace or the hard in life and you just remind yourself over and over, Jesus, Father, God, not my will but yours be done. You're learning to relinquish. And then after you pray it or maybe while you pray it, you've got to practice it. You practice relinquishment. You do this through things like when you're in the dialogue with your spouse, we won't call it an argument, but that's what it is. When you're in that dialogue, and man, you've got the perfect last word, but you hold your tongue because you're learning to relinquish. Or, or, or rather than waiting for your spouse to serve you or kind of like looking at the scoreboard going, well, I've done all this and she's only, you're gonna know I'm gonna continue serving because I'm learning to be emptied. I'm learning to use serving and love and kindness not as a way to control people, but simply as a way to bless them. And you're learning to relinquish. Maybe you start a practice or a habit of giving up the best parking spots and going further down the lot. You know, Chris, we live in Central Florida. You gotta get what you can get. I get that. But maybe if you really wanna practice breaking your habit of needing to be first, needing to win, needing to have the best, you go, hey, I'm just gonna give that up. Perhaps there's a, an older person, perhaps there's a young mom, perhaps there's somebody that needs that spot more than I do. And you're practicing relinquishment. The third secret that Paul learned was the secret of the connected life. Philippians 4.13, one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can I tell you that this verse in its original context is exactly the opposite of the way you've heard it used? Because we like to focus on the first part, I can do all things and so sports, you know, apparel companies are, you know, they're putting that on shirts and shoes and, and hats and, you know, this idea that we're macho men, we're, we're strong women, we can, we can do it. And Paul says, that's not what I'm saying. I'm actually saying I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because Paul has already emptied himself. He can't do anything on his own. <laughs> Like, he's like, I, I actually can accomplish nothing unless Christ is in me. And if Christ is in me and through me, then I can do all things in and through him. Jesus in John 14 through 16, the fourth of the gospels, was introducing to the disciples a, a, a earth-shattering idea. Those 12 men knew that the spirit of God had hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter 2. And they knew that the Spirit of God had come on people like Elijah and David and allowed them to do incredible feats of victory and strength. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, before he goes to the cross, says, guys, let me tell you something. That same Holy Spirit is going to live in you. Like, what? Yeah, yeah, like permanently. Well, it, it, you mean in us, apostles? No, no, no. Every person who follows, every person who puts their trust in Jesus, Scripture says, I will, God, God says, I will give the Spirit as a deposit that guarantees your future inheritance. You have the Spirit of God if you have placed faith in Jesus. And immediately as Jesus is introducing this concept, this is what he says, John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. 
As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, apart from me, you can do nothing. The connected life. If this was true for the disciples, if this was true for the Apostle Paul, if this was true and it was even for Jesus himself in his incarnate flesh on earth, we got to remain connected. That, that, that is the secret of victory in Christ. And so in other words, the, the work of Christian living is not to try harder or to do better. It is simply to remain in conscious connection with Christ in me. It's when I throughout my day remind myself and call to my memory that God is in me. That I don't have to look at that. I, I, don't have to, I don't have to be a slave to that. I don't have to respond in anger and lash out. I don't have to live defeated. The spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead and walked him out of the tomb lives in me. The connected life. Fourth secret that he learned, and there are five if you're counting. The fourth secret that, that Paul had learned. The secret of the purposed life. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says it so beautifully. He says, however, I do not consider my life worth anything to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This, when I was in my 20s, was my life verse. You know, when Facebook came out and we all got to like write all about ourselves, that that was what I wrote. And around that time, I I met a girl and found that her life verse was also Acts 20-24, so I married her. And we, we decided on the fact that we wanted our lives and our marriage and our family to be established on the gospel. To say with the Apostle Paul, it's all about the gospel. It's all about the proclamation of the gospel. Not only proclaiming it, but knowing Christ personally, and then out of the overflow of that, making him known. He says, I want to testify to the gospel of God's grace. As a church, First Baptist Orlando and Horizon West Church, we use the phrase that we exist to follow Jesus and lead others to do the same. That, that is our purpose. That, that's our filter for the things we do. You go start a theme park? Nope. That's, that doesn't accomplish that. You go serve the poor? Yes. Pray? Yes. Share the gospel? Yes. Because we exist to follow Jesus and lead others to do the same. Shortly after I was ordained into pastoral ministry, I was wrestling with my purpose in life and I wanted to get it clear and focused. And this is what I believe God gave me almost 15 years ago now. That my purpose in life is to cooperate with the Spirit of God in leading myself and others closer to the heart of Jesus. So you go, hey Chris, but over here, there's an opportunity to make a whole ton of money. I'm going to go, okay, but can I cooperate with the Spirit of God and leading myself and others closer to the heart of Jesus? Maybe I can. But if I can't, there's no enticement. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, I remember having the thought, I'm like, I, I would prefer my life to that of LeBron James. Some of you are going, yeah, that's probably for a lot of reasons. It was actually just one. I know for 100% certain that God didn't create me to be in the NBA. <laughs> he created me to do this to testify to the gospel of God's grace. It is my purpose. And some of you, and I want to talk to some of you that are C-level leaders, CEO, CFO, COO. Maybe you're a business founder or owner. And you wouldn't get two weeks into a business without clarifying the mission statement or the vision statement of your organization because it matters. And yet some of you haven't taken the time to do that for yourself in your own life. 
and you're just kind of chasing whatever money, whatever opportunity, whatever pretty thing is around. You go, no, 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 no. Why do you exist? What's the purpose? By the way, it can incorporate being a parent or being a spouse or your job, but it can't be those things. Do you know why? Very simply, those things can be taken from you. Uh, One of my friends and mentors, a guy named Jimmy Knott, some of you know him, pastored for a lot of years at our first Orlando John Young campus. He said to me one time, and I have a feeling he said this to thousands of young men, he said, Chris, if you were to get a phone call from the Florida Highway Patrol and they said, I regret to inform you that your wife and your three children have been in a horrific accident on I-4, none of them have survived. If, if my purpose in life is I want to be a good dad and a great husband, well, now I have no reason to live. But if my purpose is to glorify God in all circumstances, then I have reason to live even in that. Now, do I want to be a good dad? 100%. Do I want to be a good husband? 1,000%. But that is, that is secondary to the purpose of knowing Christ and making him known. The last of the five that I want to share with you, and you may look through Paul's writings and find other secrets to, to victorious living, to, to winning, but this is the fifth and last one I want to share with you. It is the grateful life. And I will not take a lot of time here because you know what gratitude is. You don't need to be taught about this as much as you need to be reminded to practice it. I want to bring the, the message full circle back to 2 Corinthians 2.14 with the first words that I read from the Apostle Paul this morning. He says, but thanks be to God. Why, Paul? Because life's great? Nope. Because <laughs> you have relational tranquility and peace? No. Because you're not on the run from people that want to kill you? Actually, no, all of those things are happening. But thanks be to God anyway. Paul learned the secret of being grateful when it appeared he had very little reason to be so. In fact, I've counted at least 25 times in Paul's letters where he either expresses gratitude or he calls for the churches to do so. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks in all circumstances. Be thankful in your worship and praise. Give thanks. It was a constant anthem and theme. This is not like the little brother of Christian practices, like, you know, sharing the gospel and worship, but yeah, being thankful. No, 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 no. It is the heartbeat of the gospel because everything that we have is by grace. Everything we have is a gift. So how could we not respond with gratitude? Did you know that extensive research has actually shown a relationship between ungratefulness and depression? Now, I don't want to oversimplify this. Depression is a complicated thing that, that, that comes for a lot of reasons, but for some of you, your drift toward depression may be little more than the fact that you have not been practicing gratitude. You rehearse in your mind the things you're stressed about, anxious about, disappointed about, hurt by, and you forget to say, God, thank you for the good things in my life. My friend Simon who directs our Celebrate Recovery ministry, I need to give him a shout out because he's a Dolphins fan and I heard his feelings earlier. But Simon shared with me a few years back, he was in a season of just trying to practice gratitude. He said, Chris, I'm doing this thing where when I wake up, before I put my feet on the floor of my bedroom, I I, I say five things that I'm thankful for. God, thanks for my wife. Thank you for my daughter. Thank you for my job. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for my awesome friend, Chris. You know, whatever those five things were. Whatever those were, and, 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 and why? Because, because a lot of us do this. We wake up and we just go, oh, 
man, I'm so angry. I'm, I'm so anxious. I got to send that email. Or worse, we grab our phone. <laughs> Wars going on. Stock market, you know, everything's crashing. Like, but what if we started our day with gratitude? And what if we practiced thankfulness throughout the day? This isn't denying that life is hard. This isn't denying that we're going through hardships. This is saying with the Apostle Paul, yes, my life is wobbly. It feels like this, but I'm going to stand on the firm foundation of what Christ has accomplished and I'm going to live in his victory and I'm going to give thanks to him for his good gifts. I want to, just before we close, do a practice of gratitude with you. We did this in the first service. I want to do it again. And I want to encourage you just to, where you're at, close your eyes for a few moments. Or maybe if it's easier for you, just look down at the floor. There's nothing magical about eyes being closed, but get into a posture that's fairly distraction-free, and I'm going to walk you through some gratitude practices. Number one, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you thank God for allowing you to encounter him, to bring you from death to life, from darkness to light? Would you say, Jesus, thank you that I get to call my own hope and peace and joy and salvation and life and goodness. Jesus, thank you for your gift. Would you think of a a place or a time or maybe a place and time where you had an experience with God? It could have been in a time of worship or, or in a time of spoken word or or, or a message where truth was unlocked for you and things changed. It might be when you were set free from a crippling addiction or sin pattern, but think of a time or a place where you recall God's goodness to you and thank him for that time. Thank him for that place. And then would you think of a person in your life, a flesh and blood person, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, somebody who has been for you a source of support, an encouragement, a place of refuge when you needed it. And maybe that was weeks or months ago. Maybe for some of you that was years or decades ago that God brought them into your life. But would you say to God, thank you for him, thank you for her. And now look up at me for just a moment. I am fully convinced that these five secrets to victory, these five things we've talked about today, These are what Jesus meant when he said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. He did not mean a better car, a bigger house, more in your bank account. He meant that we could live when everything around us and sometimes even inside of us feels wobbly, we could live in the victory that's ours in Christ. We're gonna sing a song as we close. The song is what we already sang earlier It says, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I am surrounded by you. I am surrounded by victory. And this is the way we fight our battles. We do it through through prayer and through worship. And so we're gonna invite you in just a moment to stand. After we sing, Marcy will come up. She'll give you some final kind of thoughts and instructions, close the service. But I wanna invite you, if you need prayer today, and it may be something as simple as, there's not something crazy going on. I just feel like I've been walking in a, a, a rut. I've been walking in defeat. We have team leaders that are going to be down at the front of the the auditorium, they would love to pray with you and over you. Most of you probably just need to get to your cars. Some of you need to move the opposite direction and receive prayer. So after Marcy closes the service, I want to invite you to do that. Friends, would you stand and would we sing together this anthem that we may be surrounded, but we are surrounded by Christ. Join us in worship. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. 
If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.